2: Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save. sonobello.com slash save.
3: Whether you're a skeptic or a believer, join me, Rob McConnell, as together we'll investigate the world of the paranormal and the science of parapsychology here on the Exxon Radio TV show on XZBN and the Exxon TV channel on TV. Since 1990, the Exxon Radio TV show has been the place where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. Together, we'll investigate UFOs, aliens, ghosts, Bigfoot, psychic phenomena, lake monsters, conspiracy theories, government cover-ups, the truth embargo, alien abductions, ESP, haunted locations from around the world, and so much more. or www.exxonetvchannel.com or simultv.com and xzbn.net. Until next, we meet here in the x from our broadcast center and studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Always remember, x Nation, keep your eyes to the sky and your heart in the light. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall.
2: Welcome to this edition of A Different Perspective, and I'll be joined by Dr. Bruce McAfee in just a moment. You know, I spend a lot of time preparing for the programs, reading the uh, author's books, uh, looking at the topics that we're discussing, that sort of thing. And what's uh, always happens is about an hour before the program begins, I find something new to talk about. For those of you that don't know, Christopher Mellon was a former deputy assistant secretary of defense. And he apparently said this morning on a Fox program, we know UFOs exist. There's no longer an issue this is this the issue is why they are here where are they coming from and what is the technology behind these devices that we are observing And this follows uh, reports from 2014 2015 that Navy pilots were interacting with UFOs on nearly a daily basis I mean a lot of uh, sightings going on. Mellon also said there is a vital national security issue which is that our sovereignty is being violated by vehicles of unknown origin, which is what we have been in the UFO community have been saying for literally decades, that there is a national security issue here. And the military, especially the Air Force, says, "Nah, it's nothing to it. It's just hallucinations and delusions and that sort of thing. <clears throat> I posted on my blog this morning, as a matter of fact, a um, story about the coming disclosure, disclosure being the idea the government's going to give up and admitting that uh, what we thought is true, is in fact true, that we are being visited by alien creatures. Uh, and uh, some of this suggests that the moves are being made and the information is being released that will end this full disclosure. So take a look at the po- my posting on disclosure, which I'll probably have to update now, at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. <clears throat> and as I said, I'm going to be joined here by Dr. Bruce Maccabee. Bruce has spent his early years in Rutland, Vermont, (laughs) should put some glasses on here maybe. After high school, he studied physics at Worcester Polytechnic Institute in Worcester, Massachusetts, a BS in physics, and then at the American University in Washington, D.C., an MS and a Ph.D. in physics. In 1972, he commenced his long career at the Naval Service Warfare Center. He has worked... uh, on optical data processing, generation of underwater sound with lasers and various aspects of the Strategic Defense Initiative and Ballistic Missile Defense uh, using high-power lasers. Could we have any more complicated words to throw at me here? Bruce has been active in UFO research since the 1960s when he joined NAPCAP. NICAP. <laughs> Conducting investigations and research until his demise in 1980. He became a member of MUFON in 1975 and was subsequently appointed to the position of state director for Maryland, a position he still holds. In 1979, he was instrumental in establishing the Fund for UFO Research and was chairman for the Fund for about 13 years. He presently serves on the National Board of the Fund. His UFO research and investigations have included the Kenneth Arnold sighting, the McMinnville, Oregon, Trent photos of 1950, the Gemini 11 astronaut photos of September 1966, um, the New Zealand sightings of December 1978, the Japanese airline JLA 1628 sighting of November uh, 68. And I got to talk to... uh, some of the people that were involved in that as well, and numerous other sightings. He has done historical research and is the first to obtain the flying disc file from the FBI. Bruce is the author or co-author of about three dozen technical articles and more than 100 UFO articles. He is co-author with Ed Walters of UFOs Are Real, Here's the Proof, which was an Avon book in 1997. He is the author of the UFO-FBI Connection. Llewellyn Books of May 2000, and he is the author of a novel, Abduction in My Life, when November 2000. He is listed in Who's Who in Technology Today and American Men and Women of Science, and has appeared on many radio, TV shows, and documentaries. He is an accomplished pianist and organist who performed in 1997 and 1999 at the MUFON Symposium, and I mention that simply because I've been getting into the keyboard action myself, and I am really, really terrible at it. Well, now that I've used up the entire show reading his introduction, we'll uh, see you next week. No, I'm just kidding here. Uh, Dr. Bruce Maccabee is the author. The latest book, I guess, is Three Minutes in June, The UFO Sightings That Changed the World, and that is about the um, Kenneth Arnold sightings. But before we move into that, which I know is an area that Bruce would like to talk about, and unfairly, given uh, his information, just, this information was just published today, and that is Wednesday, May 29th, and I normally don't put anything in the program that'll you know pin down the exact date but I wanted it known that this was information that just came out today and when the program airs it'll be a couple of days old old, old. Um, and as I say I, I didn't want to ambush dr. Maccabee with this but I wanted your thoughts on what uh, Christopher Mellon said today if you have any
4: well yeah I do have this uh, whole uh, disclosure phenomenon I guess you might say is a sort of been going on drip by drip, 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 drip for the last many years. And when one says, um, well, flying saucers, or UFOs, or UAPs, or whatever they want to call it, are real, uh, this has been known for a long time, but just not admitted by to by the, the government, primarily.
2: The is he the highest-ranking highest member of the government to come out and say unequivocally UFOs are real?
4: Could be. Uh, <clears throat> that, that's a possibility. I haven't checked with all the members of the government before, to find out if anybody else has said, said anything earlier. Um, but anyway, he's uh, acknowledging something that those of us who have studied this subject know has been real all along, you might say. And it's been known to the Navy. The Navy, although you've, you've heard about Project Blue Book and the preceding pre, pre, pre a uh, Project Simon, Project Grudge, uh, those were run, run by the Air Force, and sort of the Air Force has carried the ball for the government for the last 70 some years. But uh, the Navy has been in on it as well. The first uh, top, formerly top secret document that we were able to get a hold of uh, from the uh, uh, well, a document that actually was top secret, uh, a report made in, uh, in the fall of 1948, uh, has, it was supposedly written by the Air Force, <coughs> but as <coughs> co-author of the Office of Naval Intelligence. The Air Force Intelligence and Naval Intelligence were working together on this, and they may, may well have done so because the, the Navy's been involved since the beginning, too. Uh, this just, just is the first flap of sightings in 1947.
2: Well, this kind of brings a question to my mind, because you worked for the Navy for, I guess, decades. Did you ever run into any UFO-related materials when you were in the Navy, uh, working with the Navy?
4: <clears throat> not, not Navy materials. I mean, I ran into a lot of UFO stuff on the outside, but it had nothing to do with work.
2: Uh-huh. that's a question that's always asked of me because of my, my association with Air Force intelligence and later Army intelligence. Did you ever run into UFO materials? And the only thing I ever saw, there was something, and you may be familiar with, called the Weekly Intelligence Brief, the WIB. And uh, I remember one story, which was unclassified, about an airline crew, I think near Japan, that had cited something strange. And that was my only, I guess you would say, official connection from my position in the Air Force as an Air T- intelligence officer with UFOs. So I just wondered if you run anything like that at all?
4: <clears throat> well, no. I was not in intelligence. The closest that I got to a situation where there might have been some uh, association with UFOs uh, had to do with uh, the development of the uh, uh, so-called Star Wars program, uh, ballistic, ballistic Missile Defense, where they were trying to come up with a what's called an architecture, a uh, system the shooting down uh, Soviet-launched ballistic missiles. And I've been asked many times, uh, since I was on what was called the, the pilot architecture program, which was the government's version of a, uh, an attempt to put together a uh, system
0: We know you can't get enough of your favorite flavors.
2: Luckily, Kroger free pickup makes it easy to grab what you need without any surprise fees. Whether it's extra buns for the barbecue
0: or those chips you just can't quit, start your cart with the Kroger app. Kroger, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply, subject to availability.
3: It's the big $10 sale, so mix and match and get two, three, four, five, or even 10 for $10
0: with your card. So many great deals. Kroger, fresh for everyone
4: While at the same time, 10 companies were were running their own programs, everybody trying to get a piece of the pie, you might say. And that was a big pie, uh, much bigger than (laughs) 3.14. Unless you're a billion after it.
2: (laughs) A a mathematics joke. I think that's the first mathematics joke we've ever had on the program, so congratulations.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, uh, I uh, kept my ears open and my eyes open for any hint of uh, this system being designed to shoot at things coming from the outside. And uh, I never saw anything other than shooting towards the surface of the Earth. Um, Weapons, uh, well, you'd be having a series of satellites which are up there watching what's going on, 24-7 watchers up in the sky, and they would be turned towards the Earth to see if they're seeing any launches of of missiles. And well,
2: I'm going to have to break in here. The
4: weapons were designed to shoot down things that were launched from the Earth. There was a any, any, uh, thing that I saw that was related to uh, protecting the Earth from things that coming from the outside.
2: Okay, I'm going to have to break in because we're going to have to take our break. As I said, there's going to be more about disclosure or is more dis- about disclosure on my uh, blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And uh, I will be joined, uh, rejoining Bruce McAfee here. We'll be talking about, uh, I think, the Arnold sighting and that sort of thing. His book is Three Minutes in June, The UFO Sightings That Changed the World. And his website is B-R-U-M-A-C-K. B-R-U-M-A-C-K mysite.com so you can take a look at things that uh, he has to say about all of this. As I say, we'll be back and I think we'll be talking about the Arnold sighting and some of the history of UFOs in just a moment. So hang around.
1: Yeah. Guys,
0: you'll never guess what my psychic guru just told me. SIMULTV.com Exactly. Are you guys psychic too? Of course.
1: We all know about SIMULTV.com SIMULTV.com
2: I am here with Dr. Bruce Maccabee. He of, uh, I guess, great decades of UFO research. The book um, is Three Minutes in June, The UFO Sightings That Changed the World. And those three minutes in June, I suspect, are about the Arnold sighting. Is that not correct?
4: That is correct. Uh, Everybody who who begins this subject studying it uh, with an intense study or even with a, uh, let's just see what what if there is anything to it? Type of study. Um, it's going to come up against the, the Arnold study, the first one, and the one uh, which uh, during which time or the term flying saucers uh, was sort of invented to describe what he was, uh, what he would claim he was seeing.
2: But- well, doesn't, doesn't flying saucer really, I mean, came out of the idea of the motion of the thing moving across uh, like a Saucer skipping across the pond, as opposed to a shape of the craft.
4: Yes, that's right. He was he was using that description of the, the way they think, way these things move, and they, uh, zipping from point to point, sort of. And it's sort of amusing coincidence, you might say, that uh, um, the uh, world is finding out what the navy pilots have discovered that these things move in a very erratic manner they'll be in one place for a period of time and then all of a sudden disappear from there and reappear somewhere else, it could be miles away. Uh, this uh, it has pre, it's been presented in recent recently ever since since the discussions began of the uh, Navy sightings in December of 19, uh, uh, 2017 with the uh, publication of the uh, Navy sightings in uh, uh, in the New York Times. Uh, the, uh, description that these things um, well make very erratic movements and that was observed first by Kenneth Arnold in uh, 1947 some of his the characteristics that he observed of these objects have been reported by the Navy as if they were newly discovered characteristics but anybody who's studied this field carefully for a number of years has run into a number of cases where uh, erratic movements take place. I brought I'm Come to mind the sightings in New Zealand uh, in the December of 1978 that I investigated uh, on the spot sort of by going to New Zealand and talking to the pilots and so on. And they had radar sightings of uh, objects which were at least stationary at one point uh, for maybe a couple of sweeps of the radar and then the next sweep of the radar is gone. But there's an object uh, a detected object at some other place it could be miles away. And it's as if it just sort of disappeared from one place and reappeared somewhere else.
2: Well, let's let's go back to the Arnold sighting for for a moment because I, I wanted to get into the New Zealand sightings and one of the people who had sent in questions for you had uh, asked specifically about that. So we'll get to those. But what what bothers me about the Arnold sighting, and I know you've seen the original Air Force file on it, the the, the shape of the object he drew then, and later on he came up with this much more stylized crescent shape with kind of a bat wing type uh, rear to it. Uh, does that bother you, that the, the, the shape of the object sort of evolved in that direction, or evolved at all?
4: Well, he uh, initially said they were sort of like a pie, plan, pie pan with a uh, convex rear end, not really a sharp point, but the the, uh, the, the rear end was sort of like straight, uh, a V-shape. And that's what he drew in his uh, his very detailed letter to the Air Force, uh, but he says that after he thought about it, well, there were nine objects that were traveled between him and uh, over near near Mount Rainier, and he was a, he got a pretty good look at these things as they went by right in front of him, heading south, and he was he was heading towards the east, so they ran right across his path, you might say, and uh, he said that. Uh, of the nine that he counted, eight of them had this convex V-shaped rear, but one, which was not the first one, but the, the next to the last one in this line of objects, next to the last one was this uh, semi- semi-circular shape with a double, uh, a double concave shape to the uh, uh, rear end. He he had the opinion, I guess, that that was the the lead, the most important ship. Uh, he said it was seemed strange to him that the uh, what well, was the most the, more, the the leader of the pack would be near the near the rear end. But that was a, uh, a judgment call on his part. He said that the next to last one had this double con, concave uh, rear end, and all the others were like what he drew for the Air Force.
2: Well, uh- uh- Could his memory have been influenced by his discussions with um, uh, Brown and what's his name, whose name escapes me, Davis, I guess, from uh, Fourth Air Force when they were talking to him about Maury Island and it relates to the Rhodes photograph taken in Phoenix in 1947. And apparently, um, I guess, Brown drew... Uh, uh, what the object looked like in the Rhodes photograph. Could that have influenced him at all?
4: In the the Rhodes photograph, you got a semi-circular front with a single concave shape at the rear, I can guess, at the rear. That that happened two weeks after uh, Arnold's uh, sighting, which had already... Arnold's description had already been sent to the Air Force. Uh, The... uh, Semicircular with a V shape, convex V shape of the rear. Um, I don't think that uh, he, his description of the shape of this one object was affected by the the others. I think it's just that he noticed that one of them, one of them, he realized that it seemed that one of them was a little bit was different from the from the previous ones. Uh, but as I point out in this book, uh, I don't know if you looked at uh, any of the stuff that I sent you, but The uh, thing about the Arnold sighting was he was the right guy at the right time, in the right place, with the right attitude as far as I'm concerned, uh, to be the first person to have their sighting report transmitted. His sighting report was taken seriously uh, by his friends, and uh, he himself went to a newspaper to uh, report seeing these things, thinking it was his... Civilian duty there to, to report what might be, he thought might be the new uh, types of aircraft, probably uh, from the Soviet Union, and uh, so he was doing his his duty by reporting. Nobody treated him as as an idiot or anything like that uh, for for reporting these things. They.
0: the we're going family style deal because i want a bite of your big mac and i need some of your quarter pound i'll try your filet of fish there's a deal for every friend group at mcdonald's order any two classics for just six bucks price of participation may vary single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer
4: the uh, newspapers picked up on his story in a sort of a straightforward manner uh including his uh opinion that they probably were from the, from the soviet union
2: well, that, that kind of brings up a question from, from what you said. The chronology would be that he had, uh, on a flight, landed somewhere and, notif- uh, I guess, contacted the news media about what he had seen, and then later on when he landed at his home base, uh, he was met by reporters that talked to him about it uh, on the airfield. Uh, if I got that chronology right?
4: Well, he, he was headed towards uh, Yakima, Washington, Uh when he was, uh, when this sighting occurred. And uh, he told his friends when he landed at Yakima he had seen these things that he couldn't, he, he was astounded he couldn't see any uh, natural shape of an airplane. No control surfaces, no wings, no engine, no, no exhaust plume or anything like that. Uh, they were completely strange as far as shape and the way they flew, uh, sort of zipping from point to point and. Flipping and flashing in the wind is his uh, descri- description of these things. Is he? And and he also used the terminology like a saucer skipping on the water. He landed at Yakima, told his buddies there. Then he was going on uh, a business trip to Pendleton, Oregon which is a hundred miles west or whatever. And he had to cross over the mountain chain to get to Pendleton. When he landed at Pendleton, his story had preceded him, and he was asked about what he what he had seen. Well, when, when uh, you
2: say when he say when
4: you say he on a radio program discussing it.
2: Well, when you say he he uh, told his friends, did he contact them by radio while he was still in the air?
4: No, he didn't. He uh, and he explained why he didn't contact them. He he just had, he said he had a very weak radio, only good for. A couple of miles range. Uh, Since he didn't, he didn't land at big airports, where he'd have to call in uh, many miles ahead of time of the landing. Um, so he he has his his low power transmitter essentially meant that there was no point in him trying to contact anybody right off the bat. But well, he had to wait till he got to Yakima to discuss. What was happening? What what, did he have, what had happened? What happened to him?
2: Well, it certainly was a different world than you see in aviation today. I know when I was taking um, uh, fixed wing lessons, we worked out of an airport where we uh, I, they had a, didn't really have a control tower, and you had to contact. Uh, UNICOM or whatever it was and tell them you, where you were and what was going on and uh, to alert other aircraft that you are in the area. We're going to have to take another break here. In just a moment, I'll be back with Bruce McAbee. And when we come back, I've got a couple of questions that people had sent in for us to, um, I guess, pick his brain and learn what he thinks about some of these cases. And he's actually mentioned a couple of them as we've discussed it here. Uh, the blog for me is uh, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com and it's uh, Brumac dot my uh, so you can read uh, a lot of papers that he's put together and information that he's gathered over his years of research into the UFO field and learn a little bit about some of the more obscure cases things we haven't talked about here and uh, always take a look at a couple of my books which be Roswell in the 21st Century the latest is Case MJ-12 which was an updated version of a book I'd done a number of years ago and has a lot of new information in it about that we will be back uh, in just a moment so please stick around
1: Simultv offers what the others only wish they could provide. Fifteen exclusive channels like Exxon, Sci-Fi and Horror. We are worldwide. No other provider offers that. Five hundred built-in video games. No need to have an extra expensive system. We have them included. Free video on demand. Live streaming events from around the world. Interactive online network and much more. Tomorrow's TV today. Simul TV. Sound too good to be true? Well, it's not. You can have Simul TV today. Sign up at SimulTV.com. Do it today.
2: I am here with Dr. Bruce McAbee. In just a moment, we're going to uh, ask him a couple of questions that were sent in by readers to the blog. And I wanted to mention that there are uh, many other fine programs uh, about the paranormal on the ex broadcast network xcbn.net take a look at uh, those and i'm sure you'll find something that'll uh, interest you in the world of the paranormal and don't forget there is the the international ufo reporting slash research center the iuforrc at www.iuforrc.com and you can take a look at that site uh, there's a report form for reporting your sightings if you have one and uh the I there is to investigate UFO sightings to gather proper a proper database rather than just confirming a belief structure. Dr. Maccabee, when we went away, I promised the uh, listeners that I would get to some of the questions that have been sent to us, uh, or sent to me, I guess I should say. And, and, and you should be proud because I've gotten the most questions for you from any of the guests that we've had on recently. So uh, people are interested in your uh, opinions on this. I thought I just. Uh, the first question is: Has Bruce seen any photos that he feels are proof of visitation from elsewhere, or does he have an earthly explanation for all the submitted photos?
4: Well, I uh, have seen photos, videos, and movies and stuff like that uh, for years, and uh, I've picked out a few of which uh, I can't say they came from interplanetary space, but I that certainly is a possibility, but the main point is, can they be explained as a conventional craft or whatever? Uh, Probably the photo that's been produced most often over the years, the Trent photographs from May of 1950, uh, show a shaped object that clearly is not something made by by none of our human-type aircraft resembles what the, uh, the Trent object was. Uh, I've studied uh, uh, motion, motion picture film and uh, videos and so on of objects doing things that can't be, uh, can't be done by air, by our aircraft one of which uh, comes from Gulf Breeze, Florida and shows uh, an object that was hovering while somebody was uh, videotaping it and all of a sudden it took off and sort of like disappeared It went from the center of the frame all the way out beyond the edge in five five frames, that's one-sixth of a second, Uh, and you can see the uh, image itself being affected by this extreme acceleration of uh, the acceleration being noted by how far the object moves from one frame to the next Uh, and this acceleration is a uh, subject of the most most recent uh, uh, Navy stu- reports of how quick, quickly these things can move. Uh, so I've seen some stuff that yeah doesn't can I guess videos that w- w- you'd say couldn't be duplicated by our our aircraft. I would like to say something about the uh, the uh, Kenneth Arrow sighting before we leave that.
2: Okay. Um, after all these
4: years I wrote a book about, the whole book about that one sighting. Although that sighting has been sort of the foundation for the whole subject ever since 1947. Uh, nobody had written a book about it. Everybody had noted that it was a single person witness and uh, uh, the single witness cases have sort of are sort of scorned. But I argue in this book that Kenneth Arnold was the right person at the right time and the right attitude. To be seeing this, and he was in the right place where he could see these things travel along and measure the time it took for the clock on his dashboard. He had a good view of the whole track of these objects from as they went past Mount Rainier, and then 102 seconds later went past Mount Adams, 50 miles to the south, and that calculates out to about 1700 miles an hour. Uh, that's that was a thousand miles an hour faster than the fastest jets we had at the time. So, I would argue that uh, Kenneth Arnold's sighting ought to be included there. At the very least, you can't say that he was a copycat, and uh, there were other explanations for his sighting that were offered, these are all discussed in the book, and showing why none of them uh, made any sense. Uh, The the official Air Force explanation for Arnold's sighting was a mirage, because a mirage has nothing to do with what he was talking about as he described these things. Flying past him, he uh, came up with a size of about 100 feet. He Thought in size, and uh, essentially made measurements at the time of the uh, at the time of the sighting. And, uh, he was clearly of clear mind. He w- well, he re- recalled it well. In the book, I present four different recitations by Arnold. The first one being on when he was on a radio station the next day. And then the, uh, the letter that he wrote to the Air Force, what he wrote in the in the book The Coming of the Saucers, it was published in 1952, and then his last public uh, uh, his last public appearance in 1978, I think, or 79, uh, when he gave once again his recitation of the sighting. All these four descriptions of the sighting uh, are very very close to the same. So. You have the same person giving his, giving this description over a period of time of about 20-some years, well, years. Well, let me,
2: let me break in here and ask you a question then. Um, do you discuss the Fred Johnson sighting in your book? Yes. Because that, that I, would seem to suggest a second witness, even though he wasn't seeing the same th- things at the same time. Uh, it was just minutes later, so um, yeah. doesn't that kind of corroborate Arnold in a fashion?
4: Arnold Arnold said it was at three o'clock, and by the way, the title of the book comes from the duration of the sighting, it's about three minutes, from Arnold seeing them when he saw, uh, saw a bright flash uh, far to the left as he's heading eastward, far to the left for him was north, and these were traveling south, north to south, Uh, and and weaving in and out of the mountain peaks, he said. So he had an idea of how far away they were from him, and he was able to time them going from uh, Mount Rainier to Mount Adams. Uh, Fred Johnson, the uh, prospector, uh, read about Arnold's sighting in the newspapers and sent a letter to the uh, Air Force uh, describing what he saw. And he said he was on the uh, flank of... uh, Mount Adam, on the side of Mount Adam's prospecting, when these things went over, uh, his head going upwards into the clouds. Uh, about the time that Arnold said that he, they, they were disappearing near Mount Adams, as far as Arnold was concerned, that was the same time that Fred Johnson saw these things going over his head, and uh, he described them as being semicircular, with a, thing like a tail away. which is going back and forth like the hand of a clock.
2: Uh, didn't didn't uh, Johnson also describe some electromagnetic effect?
4: Yes, he said his compass was wobbling as these things went over and after they disappeared his compass resumed, resumed its uh, normal compass, compass function. This is a, a magnetic field effect, presumably, and he thought they were maybe a thousand feet above his head. It's a huge magnetic field to affect something like a compass over a distance of a thousand feet.
2: So, Arnold's sighting really isn't stand-alone, there is a second to witness were to other, it. Sure there are
4: other people too who saw objects in the sky uh, at the, in the same time frame. One guy in Idaho who, said, uh, who saw these objects heading to the west, and he said, yeah, they, Arnold probably saw the same thing a little bit later uh, than, than this man who was in uh, Idaho. Uh,
2: who was the guy in Idaho?
4: I, I forget the name, but uh, there was was, it, were several people he, the they was, saw things up in the sky.
2: Was he a newspaper guy? No. Okay, good. It's not, I was thinking of somebody else then. Uh, okay, so um, on the photographic end of it, you said something that I found interesting and I, it's kind of a, a idea I have. You say that you know the photos don't prove they're extraterrestrial or interplanetary or interstellar, uh, but they represent uh, I guess, a craft that is, hasn't been built on Earth yet. Um, but you can't take that leap into extraterrestrial from just the photograph.
4: I guess the closest to extraterrestrial, you'd tell you, would be the Skylab 3 photograph. Skylab was a, after, after the uh, uh, moonshots ended, we wanted to put a laboratory up in space where there would be enough room to do experiments and so on. And Skylab was sent up in 1972 I guess, it was up there for several different crews, uh, Skylab 1 was one it was one crew, Skylab 2 was another crew, Skylab 3 was the third crew, and uh, that was uh, three astronauts uh, who were doing experiments of various types in the Skylab, and uh, on the 16th of September I think it was, it was uh, one of the days in September, um, one of them happened to look out at one of the windows and see this red object out there, a red dot and uh, called the attention of the other astronauts and they looked out and they all three saw this, this red thing out there and uh, one of the guys took pictures of it and these pictures, you go to my website you can read the whole uh, article, the whole uh, analysis of this uh, event. Uh, there's no explanation for this red thing that was, that was there, um, and that was clearly out in, sp- in outer, outer space. It wasn't inside the Earth's atmosphere.
2: Well, let me let me break in here because I'm going to have to take because I'm going to have to take the break. Um, and you kind of anticipated one of the questions, which was about the Skylab three sightings, and we'll get back to that when we come back to the program here. Once again, the book is uh, three minutes in June. Uh, so the UFO sighting that changed the world, and the website is brumac.mysight.com. Mine is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and we will continue our discussion with, I guess, UFOs and uh, try to get to the rest of these questions in the last segment of the program. So we will be back in just a moment, so please stick around.
0: Christopher Fulton is a survivor of the National Security State. All he wanted to do was preserve history when he acquired a Cartier watch from the estate of President Kennedy's personal secretary. But that simple act set off a terrible chain reaction. He was pursued by the US Justice Department and the FBI, thrust into the middle of the US government's Assassination Records Review Board, even monitored and pursued by the Russian government. All because that Cartier watch was the missing link of evidence, a timepiece worn by JFK that fateful day in Dallas, a link resulting in Christopher being incarcerated and attacked for nine years because he opened a hidden chapter in history. The intriguing journey outlined fully in Christopher Fulton's memoir, The Inheritance, is available now through Trinday.com or amazon.com. The Inheritance, Poisoned Fruit of JFK's Assassination by Christopher and Michelle Fulton is a must-read, an incredible tale of how easily our own government can overrule justice. The Inheritance, Poisoned Fruit of JFK's Assassination.
2: I am here with Dr. Bruce Maccabee. We've been talking about UFOs and Kenneth Arnold and sightings. And when we went away, we were talking about the Skylab 3 sighting. Um, and I guess you said that they, they saw a red light or a red object uh, from the Skylab?
4: Yes. And uh, they took four pictures of it. Three of the pictures show a dot. The fourth picture shows a structure. And uh, it's kind of hard to describe this structure, but if you go to my website, Look up Skylab three by scanning down through the, uh, uh, the all the articles that I've written. You look up Skylab three, and you can see pictures, that, copies of the pictures that they took. Did, uh, did, has, has, have,
2: have the skeptics offered any explanation for what uh, the photograph shows?
4: Oh, well, yeah, yes or no. Um, I they try to try to argue that it might have something to do with uh, uh, light coming through the uh, atmosphere of the Earth, being colored. Uh, the, the effect of the atmosphere uh, causing uh, uh, the reddening of the sunset, so to speak, and the reddened sunset, illuminating an object that would, be a, what would ordinarily be out there in space, satellites we make are either silvery, metal, or painted white. Um, and uh, they would argue that these, some silvery or whitish object was there, a uh, satellite of some sort, and illuminated by the sun when uh, the sun is near, nearly extinguished by the edge of the Earth, so the sunlight is going through the atmosphere and turning red. The red sun bouncing off silver and piece of metal, for example, might explain it, but the astronauts actually threw that out themselves by uh, timing when this red thing went into uh, the Earth's shadow, after their own satellite went into the Earth's shadow, it was several seconds, five or six, seven seconds before this other thing went into the Earth's shadow, and uh, it it didn't match up with uh, what what you would expect for a satellite. Uh, an ordinary satellite. It was something that was not there. Uh, Well, it shouldn't shouldn't have been there, I guess, is the best way to describe it, but it's a pretty technical article. You can go and read um, their testimony about it, uh, what, what people have said about the sighting.
2: Oh, what are your What are your thoughts on the RB forty seven case? This was the um, I guess a sort of a visual radar sighting that took place back in nineteen fifty seven.
4: Yeah, that's a very complicated case.
2: Yeah, <laughs> what I was as I was talking to you about, that, it just suddenly came to me that this is a very complicated case. It breaks down, I guess, into radar sightings and uh, visual sightings.
4: And also, they had uh, electro electrical intelligence equipment on board the same airplane, and they were getting some signals from it with footprints suggested
2: that it
4: had uh, they, they quote they unquote uh, were able to send us signals that are our, uh, our specially instrumented airplanes could detect uh, as as uh, radio signals in other words we were detecting radiation from them from from this from this object it seemed to be radiating in the uh, uh, microwave band where the uh, Electronic intelligence uh, stuff operates,
2: but the uh, the crew did. I, I know some of the guys were buried down in the the I guess the hold or the cargo department of the aircraft, uh, watching radar scopes and things like that. But there was a, of course, a air crew up there that, and they had uh, visual sightings that went along with this. Yes. Uh, anything spectacular about the visual sightings, uh, uh, shape so of the I'm craft or anything? Not,
4: I'm not an expert on this particular case. It's been long. Ah. Is
2: that, is that, <laughs> that was that was one of the ones that uh, people asked me about and I've been kind of fascinated with that and I know that uh, I guess Brad Sparks has done a lot of work on the RB-47 oh. case so um, I guess that would be something for someone else to look up uh, what uh, what do you think are the best photographic cases that uh, haven't really been explained either still or movie videos
4: well uh, there's the yep. Trent case of course, I should point out that Every, almost every photo, photo case has, a, has an explanation proposed. That doesn't mean that it makes any sense. Um, for example, in the, uh, uh, the, the Trent case, um, the most recent explanation is that Trent took a truck mirror and hung it from overhead wires, photographed it, took a couple of photographs, and then they invented a story to go along with it. Uh, I talked to the, Mrs. Trent, Many times in the uh, latter half of the 1970s, uh, and I collected all of the uh, information I could from other people who talked to the trench over the years, from nine, starting in 1950 and going up into the uh, uh, 1990s when they uh, when they died, and they were totally consistent in saying that they had seen this thing in, in their story about what it was. Uh, nobody who talked to the trench. Got the impression that they would be clever enough to uh, think of how to hoax something like this.
2: Was there anything going on in May of 1950 that would inspire somebody to do a hoax like that? I mean, was there a big wave of sightings going on that uh, was n- nationally reported? or
4: uh, nothing, nothing in particular. Uh,
2: so it's not, not like you would see today where people are talking about UFOs and suddenly somebody shows up with pictures and he was inspired to hoax them because of all the sightings that were going on.
4: Yeah, right. There were continual sightings from 1947 onwards, but the number of sightings reported in the press uh, was was not very great. Uh, you get a few articles every now and then. Uh, and the, the Air Force knew that there were sightings going on because their Project Sign and Project Grudge were collecting, collecting reports, uh, and uh, some civilians were collecting reports. But there was no big flap like it happened in 1947, or it happened again in 1952. And by the way, I have a book out now called The Legacy of 1952, The Year of the UFO, uh, which directly addresses the situation of uh, uh, 1952 having over a thousand sightings collected by the Air Force. Uh, and uh, the, this is a period of time when in the summer of 1952, there were objects appearing for two weekends over uh, the national the national capital,
2: and it was uh, kind of inspired the some of the investigation that went on uh, went on afterwards. Uh, I think there was an awful lot of sightings. I think there was 1,500 that were collected in 1952, right. and like 300 of them were uh, unidentified. That's and right. the Washington Washington Nationals, which you referred to, the radar visual sightings with the uh, Air intercepts actually, as well, um, got the interest of the president and uh, the Congress uh, as well. So it's kind of a uh, uh, time of big UFO re- reports. Uh, a very important event
4: that happened. That sort of solidified the, uh, pol- the policy that the Air Force had towards UFOs, namely that they didn't exist. Uh, there were so many sightings that the Air Force figured something had to be done. To damp down the interest in the, uh, in the UFOs that was being picked up by uh, newspaper articles all over the place. When, when a big news, big newspaper has in three-inch print on the front page uh, hundreds in the Area see UFOs, um, you know something, something weird is going on. So the Air Force Director General John Samford, who was the director of intelligence for the Air Force to hold a press conference, which he did on July 29th of 1952, Uh, and uh, uh, he basically said that as far as he was concerned, everything was natural phenomena. Uh, The radar detections over the Capitol were a result of uh, bending of radio waves uh, due to temperature temperature gradients uh, uh, in the atmosphere and uh, there was really no ufos being picked up by radar um, there and the the press was all happy with that went went away and said that uh, there was an article about uh ufos are just hot airs in general and, well the
2: interesting thing is i talked to uh, major dewey Fournet and al chop both of men who were working with the Pentagon on UFOs, one in the military, one in the civilian side, who were in the radar room on, I guess, July 26th. So yeah. I had an opportunity to interview them uh, quite a while ago about their experiences, and it just doesn't match with what General Sanford was saying at his press conference about it being temperature inversions and illusions and all kinds of things like that. Uh, Dr. McAbee, I am out of time. I have to thank you for taking uh, your time to uh, chat with us here. Uh, thank about you UFOs. You... Uh, your book uh, you wanted me to push was Three Minutes in June, The UFO Sightings That Changed the World, and we've mentioned the website, and more information can be found at brucemaccabee.mysite.com Thank you, Dr. McAbee.
4: Thank you. Uh,
2: next week, I'm going to be joined by Dan Wright. He uh, has written a book, The CIA and UFOs, and we'll be chatting about what he's learned there and uh, some interesting things like that. Um, I'm going to kind of pursue this uh, statement by, uh, was it Christopher Mullen or Mellon, whatever the heck his name was, about the, uh, uh, them knowing that the UFOs are here, that they're extraterrestrial, that they're, they're, they're a matter of national security and that sort of thing. And I'll post some things to my blog. And we'll have uh, some more information from Dr. Maccabee up on the website as well, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And as I say, as always, if you have questions uh, for Dan Wright about the CIA and UFOs, uh, send them to me in the comments sections from the blogs. I'll pick those up and try to get those answered. Uh, for you, unfortunately, I didn't get to all the questions that had been submitted this time because um, we had a lot of other discussions going on as well. So, these things sometimes happen. Once again, my uh, book, my latest book, is Case MJ12 about the MJ12 documents. I uh, Take a look at Encounters in the Desert, which is about the Socorro sighting, where we have again learned that there it wasn't single witness; there were multiple witnesses, and of course, the always present, always. Bu- valuable Roswell in the 21st Century. I will be back in 167 hours with a different perspective, so keep listening.